Good morning and Happy New Year's. It is so good to be here this morning. Um, there's just something exciting and something that, that feels right about starting the new year here in church. And there's this extra element of excitement that I get to start the new year preaching to the church. I'm very grateful uh, for this opportunity, and I'm very excited. So um, let's go ahead and dive right into the message. If you have your Bibles or your phones and you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Psalms chapter 6. And while you are turning there, I want to kind of set a little bit of the mood and tone before we get to our passage. I'm going to ask you to exercise a little bit of your imagination. I'm going to tell a a quick story, and my request is, is that you try to let your emotions connect with the story I'm about to tell and then also with the passage. And I'll expand, expand upon that in a little bit. But let's just imagine, you know, it's a new year where lots of people are thinking about health and, and wellness and happiness and those sorts of things. And let's just imagine for a second that you are really, really healthy. I mean really healthy. Nothing hurts, you exercise all the time, you have a great regimen, you eat well, you have good vitamins, you sleep well, your body doesn't ache at all. You're healthy, that sounds pretty nice, right? Yeah. Um, But all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you develop these these strange symptoms in your feet. And uh, there's just some cramping, some mild discomfort. You're healthy, you can easily ignore this symptom. It's fine. You can sleep a little bit more. You can exercise a little bit more, change your diet routine. It's fine. But a few weeks go by, and the same type of symptoms start showing up in your hands. This, this annoying symptom of cramping, and, and your hands don't feel right. And okay, this is annoying, but you're healthy. You can push through this. You're busy. you got things to do. You can ignore this one, too. It might be a little bit of an inconvenience, but you're healthy. A few more weeks go by and you start noticing some things that are a little bit more troubling. You're dropping things, you're stumbling, your vision's blurry, you're getting hit with these insane bouts of weakness and exhaustion. All of a sudden you start thinking, maybe I'm not healthy, maybe there's a, maybe there's a problem. These symptoms might be telling me something is wrong. So you go to the doctor and thank goodness you did. Because the doctor quickly identifies these symptoms are pointing to a very serious disease. But there's some bad news. There's no cure for this disease. You've just found out that you are doomed to live in the tension of rising suffering within your body until you die. You go home. Hope is quickly fading. It seems like something that's just in the, the rear view mirror. And the next few months of your life are spent in utter despair and suffering. But one day you wake up and you see on the news that the exact disease you have found, or that you have, there has been found a cure. And what's miraculous about this cure is that it's easy to make, it's already been manufactured, all you have to do is take this cure and you are healed, 100% guaranteed, restored. Oh, the hope, the joy, right? This is wonderful, wonderful news. 
It's a miracle. You're saved. Now, I'm asking you to connect uh, emotionally to this story because the passage that we're going to dive into is going to have some of these undertones that we just went with. And um, earlier this week, Pastor Stephen met with me to go over this message. And um, let's all just, just take a moment to be grateful that he did. Um, he was able to bring deeper clarity and truth to uh, what I was seeing and, and where I was going. Uh, he steered me rightly, and uh, this is going to be a much better message because of the shepherding that Pastor Stephen did with me. So uh, any of the good stuff, he gets credit. Anything else, it's on me. Um, but, uh, but as I had my eyes, it literally felt like this veil was just lifted from my eyes, and I was like, oh. This truth, it's so, it's so deep. This is so important. This is so, this is so much bigger than I thought. I was really excited, and I literally, he left, and I, I ran upstairs to my computer, and I started reworking the outline, all excited, but I struggled. And I, I couldn't figure out why. I was like, these truths are so wonderful. Why am I struggling to put them together? It was only until I allowed the truths to actually affect my heart, that this sermon really came together. And truth is truth, no matter how we feel about it, but it is meant to pierce our hearts. And so I'm asking you, try to leave not just your mind open, but as we go into this message in just a second, leave your heart open to the truths as well. And uh, as we go into this, this, this passage, we're going to see we're coming on the scene of something. Um, there's going to be some, what it feels like, missing context, but there's a definite tone and mood to how this passage starts. There's things like despair, seriousness, pleading, suffering. That's what we're coming up upon. So let's go ahead and we'll start with Psalm 6, verse 1. It says, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. What did we just stumble upon? This feels almost like one of those movies where there's missing context. You come into this really intense scene, and it's super important that you pay attention to what's happening, even though you're not, you don't have all the pieces. This first verse is going to function as the foundation for the rising tension that we're going to see built in this passage. And there's one thing that we cannot miss from this verse. And I'll just tell you what it is. It's very important. It's that David has sin. That's the idea here. God is a just and righteous God. He does not rebuke in anger. He does not discipline in wrath. Righteousness and good. David has a problem and it's his sin. Now, um, we could go to Psalms 38 for the sake of time. We're not going to do this, but Psalms 38 has more insight into Psalm 6. It actually starts the very exact same way, and it kind of expands upon this um, explicitly, what's a little bit more implicit here in the text. Um, but we, we can clearly see that there's a problem with David, and we know that sin is serious, David actually wrote in Psalms 51.4, against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. There's this, this rightful sense of a looming doom over David that we're coming upon here in this passage. He has 
guilt for his sin. And this is serious. We know that God judges sin. I could preach an entire message just on that one statement, God judges sin. But uh, if we went to Colossians 3, 5 through 6, it says that we should put to death what is earthly in us, sin. Um, Things like sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of sin, the wrath of God is coming. What do we see in verse 1? Don't discipline me in your wrath. There's also in this first verse some humility, some brokenness. There's certainly an acknowledgement of sin. One of the things I love about this verse is we don't see David trying to barter with God. He's not saying, whoa, hang, hang on a minute, Lord. You, uh, you're overreacting. I may have done something wrong, but it's really not as bad as you think it is. Please change your position on this. Maybe we can reevaluate my position before you. No, David is guilty. It's very clear. He is not arguing that point at all. And so then we move on to the next two verses, uh, verses two and three. And we see he has this request, and then we see something else happening. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I'm suffering. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? I want to take just a few moments to kind of uh, rework some of the things we've already just gone through. But, but what we see in these next few verses is that David's symptoms of his sin are starting to seep out. We see here that there is a physical suffering because of his sin. We also see that there is a spiritual suffering because of his sin. Now, again, we could go to Psalms 38 uh, and we could see this expanded upon a little bit more. But I do think in this text, it clearly differentiates between a physical and a spiritual suffering. The physical languishing, the, the uh, f- physical languishing that he has is this idea that his bones are troubled. This is a physical problem and it is deep. This is not surfacy, something he can just get at and treat. This is a deep physical suffering. Which one of us can, can reach into our own body, touch our bones and pull out the pain? He can't. He can't do this. So he's asking for healing. And I do think David is asking for physical relief from his symptoms here. But I also think that there's something greater that he's asking for in his healing. And we'll come back to that. But apart from the physical, there is a spiritual suffering. And perhaps this is even greater. Because he says, my bones are troubled, but my soul is greatly troubled. There's this imagery here of, yes, the physical side of this is hard, but my spirit is suffering. We would do really, really well to just take a moment, which we're going to do, and we're going to acknowledge, this is going to help us in life, and this is going to help us in this passage, we're going to acknowledge that there is a relationship between the physical 
and the spiritual in us. It is interwoven. You cannot separate us entirely in this form on earth from our physical or our spiritual nature. It is one of the things that makes us human and God made them both. It's who we are. But they interplay off of each other. We know this experientially and we know this through science. We know that when people have spiritual, mental problems, they can manifest themselves, their symptoms, physically. Anxiety can lead to headaches and heart problems and gut issues. Depression and guilt can lead to sleeplessness and exhaustion. I mean, the list goes on and on. I, I know that I have experienced this. When my mind and my soul and my spirit are not right before God, my body can suffer. It can physically suffer. But there's also another side to this coin in which we need to recognize that we are physical and sometimes we can suffer physically. It's not because of a spiritual thing. It is just a physical problem, a physical suffering. And you know what it, it, it can do? Do you know the temptation that it can bring? It can just wreak havoc on your spirit. I am the literal poster boy for this, if you ask my wife, how is your husband when he's sick? She will roll her eyes and tell you that every time I am sick, I am having an existential crisis. I question everything. Why am I doing this? Is this really real? Is all of this important? Have I placed my faith in the right area? Oh Lord, how long? I have very real spiritual battles because of my physical suffering. We need to be aware of that and that that is a possibility. But here in our passage today, in David's case, this is sin that is leading to a physical manifestation. But let's just imagine for a second that he might be on a crazy cycle. You know, a crazy cycle, one thing makes the other thing worse, the other thing worse makes the other thing worse, right? His sin is coming out physically. His physical suffering is amplifying his suffering of sin. His sin is just amplifying his physical suffering. He's on this, this crazy cycle. So again, I ask, have you been here? I have. And then we get uh, towards the end of this, we get this, this wonderful question. David asks, oh Lord, how long? It's a very human, wonderful question. But the, there's some implications in this question. I want to try to tease them out, okay? Because we're going to see them develop as we go. But they start right here in this passage, right here in this question, how long? The implication is, is that this is a miserable place for David to be, and it has not gone away quickly. We're going to see here this idea develop that when David is not immediately delivered from his suffering, there are these temptations to believe certain things. Has God cut me off because of my sin? Does he listen to me anymore? Will he even deliver me after this? Uh, when I was going through this, this reminded me very much of when Pastor Stephen preached in the book of John, and he talked about Peter's betrayal of Jesus. And we know that, um, like uh, we'll see later in the passage, David weeps. We know that Peter wept bitterly. 
He probably had some sleepless nights. He probably had some indigestion, some anxiety. Um, but uh, one of the things I thought that was just so significant about that message is that there's this moment that Peter has with Jesus, and, and Pastor Stephen really, really illuminated it. There was this, this question of, am I still part of the plan? I betrayed you, Lord. Would you still turn to me, use me? Are you still caring about me, listening about me? This temptation we're going to see develop as we go through this passage. Again, I can say I felt this way. I've had great, great sin in my life where I have felt something's broken. God doesn't hear anymore. It's a temptation that's come, come at me in my sin. So then I said we're going to uh, expand upon these few verses a little bit. So I have a question. What does David do with his symptoms, physical and spiritual? What does he do with his fears of his sin being too great? We have a clue. We've already seen this, this statement, this phrase repeated several times. We're going to see it again in verse 4 as well. The statement is, O Lord. It comes up five times in four verses. David goes to God with his sin and with his troubles and with his fear. He goes to God with it. He goes with this recognition of, I can't do this. I can't fix this. I'm coming to the one who is. If David could fix it, this whole thing is pointless. He doesn't need to go to God for this. He's going to God because God is the one who can fix it. There's also this recognition of God's position in this. The phrase, O Lord, is the word Yahweh. The highest name for God. David is beseeching the highest form of God. He's humbling himself in his position, and he's going to God in his high position. I find it really interesting. Last time I preached up here, I preached on what to do after you're delivered. This is a message of what to do in need of your deliverance. But one of the themes that carries through is a recognition of God's position and your position in this role of deliverance. There's a humility here. There's also an appropriate repetition here. I'm going to do a good job of trying to, to tease this out. I think that this is very applicable. It is good for David that he must repeatedly come to God. It gives a, a certain weight to the problem of his sin. This is serious. He has to keep coming to God for it. There's this emphasis on who saves. He knows where his deliverance is coming from. There's this, this rightly magnifying of God in the repetition of coming to him again and again. And I I can't help but thinking that David has been delivered by God in several ways before this. He knows God is a deliverer. He's been delivered before. He knows this is supposed to work. Uh, being a physical therapist, um, I have people sometimes who come to me and I, within a few minutes, know the problem. I can see the symptoms, and I know the problem. I love when that happens. It's clear. And I tell the patient, I know what this is, and I know how to fix it. Let's get started. We start working, and you know what happens? They leave my office, and they're not 
100% healed yet. They have to come again. They have to come again. They have to come again. And every time they come, they are doing something that is actually working within them to bring health. This repetition of going to the right source for the treatment, this repetition of going to the right source for the solution is doing something within them that ultimately does produce health. David is going to the source again and again. If you are suffering, whether it is because of your sin or not, I would, I would assert and I would recommend that you don't get frustrated if you have to go to the source again and again. It's doing something good for David. There's a caution here. I think it's, it's easy to read this passage and it's easy for us. It's only 10 verses long. We get the beginning, David's suffering because of his sin. We get the end, spoiler, spoiler alert, David's delivered. Oh wow, that was easy. No. The, the passage here, the point of this, we get questions like, how long? I'm weeping, I'm languishing, I'm troubled, I'm weary. These things do not happen with immediate deliverance. David is stuck in his suffering. So I do think there's a principle here that our deliverance is not always immediate. Sometimes something beneficial can be done in our need to go to God again and again for us. It's beneficial for us. I would also just say um, the suffering is appropriate Sin is serious. There is an appropriate weight when we suffer because of our wrongdoing against God. There's an appropriateness in the suffering. It's terrible. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying it gives a weight to the sin. I think one of the principles we can start teasing out then is that the consequences of our sin can be, because of the grace of God, a benefit. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The consequences of our sin, the symptoms, the suffering, the guilt, even the physical stuff, can be a benefit to us, a blessing. Like in the story, the, the, the one I just told in the beginning of this, this idea that the symptoms were pointing to a problem and you had to go to a doctor to figure out what those symptoms were. This is the idea of that sin is serious. It produces symptoms. And symptoms have the opportunity to pull your sin into the light where it does not want to be. This suffering has this opportunity to point to the problem. You have to deal with it because you're suffering. You're not going to stay here you're going to go and try to drag this out into the light. What is the problem? Well, for here, it's David, it's sin. I think of the example of um, pancreatic cancer. Uh, pancreatic cancer, my understanding is it's, it's one of the most serious forms of cancer. Most people do not survive it, and it kills most people really, really quickly. One of the reasons that it does this is because it is asymptomatic, no symptoms, until it is far too late. There's an idea here that God is blessing us by letting us feel the symptoms of our sin 
so that it does not run rampant and so that it can be dealt with by him. Some of you, um, I hope you're not tempted to turn you know, off your, your brain at this part of the message because you're thinking, yes, I am suffering physically, but it's not because of my sin. Um, we, we at this church recognize that, uh, that that is true. I'm going to expand upon that in, in, in a moment. Um, we, we understand that not all suffering physically is because of sin. But I, I do want to just assert that until Christ comes back, until he finishes his work within us, until we are united with him in either death or in his return, we will deal with sin. It is the reality of our lives. It is not a question of, of will it happen, it's when it happens. Sin will be something we deal with in our own lives, in others' lives, and it is something that the consequences of it are very real. So, one of the things that whether or not you are here today and you're saying it's because of my sin I'm suffering or I'm just suffering, there's a universal principle here that I want to give you. I think it applies to to everybody. It's this idea that going to God in your suffering is appropriate and it is necessary. Take your problem to him. Tell him all about it. Like I just said, we understand physical suffering in this world is not always due to sin. All right? The devil is not under every single rock here. But we live in a broken world. The effects can cause suffering. We live in a a world where we have an adversary. And we live in a world where we have sin. So its effects are going to be there. So are you suffering? Are there spiritual, mental, emotional episodes of suffering in your life? Is it because of sin? My recommendation would be that you go to God to find out. David himself wrote in Psalms 139:23, "Search me, O God, know my heart." David goes to God, that's what he's doing here. He's going to God and asking him for clarity. If you are unsure, go to the God of clarity, not confusion. Filter your suffering through your prayer to God. That's what he's doing. Now, this also may look like going to Scripture. God has spoken. Filter your suffering through the grid of Scripture and get clarity. This may look like going to faithful church members. They can give you feedback on your suffering. But I promise you this, God is not confused or uncertain about why you are suffering. If there is confusion there, go to him. Now, um, one more principle before we move on in the verses that I'm just trying to tease out here in the beginning. And uh, again, this is a little bit more implicit, but we're going to see it more clearly as we go on in the passage. And I mentioned earlier, um, just briefly, but your sin is going to create this temptation that you need to withdraw from God, that you need to hide from him. Sin does this. It blinds us to how we are supposed to see things. And it, it gives us this temptation to run from God. We saw it right in the beginning with the first sin. Adam and Eve, what do they do? God comes down and they hide. 
My sin is the very basis on which I need to come to God. He is the only one who has any power or authority to do anything about it. And again, in our passage, this is what David is doing. He is going to Yahweh, King of kings, highest name, God. All right, so then we continue, and we get to my, every time I I preach, I typically have a favorite part. So this is my favorite part. Um, We get to Psalm 6, verse 4, and we get, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Why do I like this so much? Because um, in the past couple of weeks, I have used this very often. What is David doing here? He is going to God and he is appealing to God's character of love. He is not coming to God and saying, I think you should save me because I'm pretty awesome. He's not going to God and saying, you know what, God, you're going to lose out if you don't deliver me. I have these attributes that I can, I can bring to the table. You should save me. No. He's going to God and he's beseeching his character. There's this idea that he's holding on to his coattails and he's saying, you're the one who has love. You're the one who redeems. And I'm asking you to act out of your character. Please save me because of who you are. The great redeemer. The great deliverer. This is another one of those universal principles that I would say whether your suffering is because of sin or your suffering is just because we live in this broken world with an adversary, but you should go to God and you should cry out to him. It's one of the wisest things you could do. Lord, act out of who you are. Act out of your character. There's been many times in these past couple of weeks, um, I joked with uh, a couple people earlier uh, this week, I said, I'm... I'm never going to preach on needing to be delivered again. It's just, it's been, it's been a couple of weeks for me. And uh, God made sure that the person preaching his word to you right now was on his knees crying, oh God, deliver me because of who you are. It's a wonderful thing that we can do. There's nothing greater that we can do. This is an appeal to God and his position, Yahweh, This is an appeal to God and his power. No one else can do this. And this is an appeal to his person. This is who you are, God. You deliver for the sake of your steadfast love. But the tension is going to rise again. We're going to see it in verse 5 here. Verse 5 says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? This tension is now rising. David is not just suffering here in this, this, okay, I have physical problems and spiritual problems. He is now saying, he's now acknowledging that his sin is deserving of death, of Sheol. And Sheol is a little bit tricky in the Old Testament, but um, one of the big ideas of Sheol in the Old Testament is this idea of the wicked go there. And they don't have the privilege or the luxury of being able to praise God. 
And David is coming to God. And, and let's be very, very clear here. David is not dangling this proverbial carrot in front of God saying, you who you deliver me and uh, I will scratch your ego and praise you a little bit more. No. What David is saying is there is something inherently wrong about me being made in your image as someone who was designed to give you glory and praise. And there's something inherently wrong about me not being able to function that way. This is wrong. Oh Lord, you designed me. Please restore me to a position in which I can do as I was designed to do. Many, many years ago, uh, in a community group, uh, I, I bonded with one member here of the church over um, this exact verse. Uh, this member and I, we were both physically suffering, and we were separately going through the Psalms. The Psalms, as we're discovering, is a great place to deal with suffering and things like that. And we were going over them, and we both found this verse, and we both found this confidence, this desire to run to God with our problem of suffering on the basis that he should restore us so that we could rightfully do what we were designed to do. Too many times I have been guilty of going to God and asking for deliverance so that I can do what I want to do. I'm asking for him to relieve the suffering so that I can go back to amplifying myself and magnifying myself. This suffering, Lord, is really getting in the way of my plans. It's terrible. But that's not what David is doing here. David is saying, there is something inherently wrong with this, Lord. Please, for the sake of your steadfast love, restore me so that I can praise you and do what I was designed to do again. Now we get to the next two verses, verses six and seven. I'm gonna read them in a second, but I want you to really try to feel this part because this part is where the tension rises to the climax of the passage. We're going to get to the breaking point here. I want you to feel, feel this. It says, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of its grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The imagery here is that David is so disturbed by his sin. His symptoms have led him to this point. He's sleepless. He's, he's not just, he's just, just tossing and turning. He's weeping to the point where his eyes are puffy and swollen. He can't physically see anymore. They're wasting away. He's sunken. He's weary. He's so tired even from his crying. And I, I, I think... The imagery even goes deeper here. This idea of his depression, his guilt. There's this idea of darkness of Lord. My eye wastes away. I don't see hope anymore. It's nothing but darkness now. Have you left? Has hope left? Am I stuck here in this, this despair, in this hopelessness? Right at the end it says, his eye grows weak because of all of his foes. What? David's already suffering spiritually because of his sin? And now he has to suffer physically? And on top of that, there are foes? 
What David is saying here is that his sin has opened a door into his life in which his foes can grab a spear and jab him with it. His sin has left him vulnerable to his foes. It has left a foothold in, their, in his life that they can now climb in and wreak havoc on him. He's in darkness. His sin has opened these doors. He's vulnerable. His foes are exploiting this vulnerability of his sin. I hate to say this, but I have literally experienced a massive failure in sin and this, on my part. And the same day, someone else comes to me with a problem of their sin. And I'm ill-equipped. I, I'm, I'm in the same place. My sin has, has left me vulnerable to this, this circumstance. This is where David is at. Do you get the imagery here? Do you see where the tension of these first seven verses are leading us to conclude about David? It's that David is a dead man. David is dead. He's, he's physically dead and he's spiritually dead. There's no other conclusion. He's suffering physically. His foes are closing in. Lights out, but he's, in, he's invoked the wrath of God, the anger of God. This temptation to believe that he's separated. The tension is leading to this as this conclusion. David's done for. And I'm so glad I don't have to stop preaching right here. Because we get these next three verses. And we're going to see this, this incredible light switch moment, reverse intention, a resolution of it all. This confidence that comes in and this tone and mood that completely shifts. It goes like this, verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Can you feel the confidence? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Wow, what? This was a dead man. How did we get here? What just happened? I could use a little of whatever David's taking in my life. Wow. Well, what's happened is that the Lord has heard. That's what's happened here. This is the opposite of Lord, are you near? Are you listening? This is the Lord is near. The Lord is listening. He has heard. Uh, Ted Boykin recently preached on peace, and one of the things that he said was that a large portion of why we can have peace here in this broken world is because we have confidence that God hears us. Uh, again, when we went through the book of John, that series was just wonderful. But when we went, we went through the book of John, one of my favorite parts was uh, chapter 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead. I absolutely love that part. But there's this, this part in verse uh, 41 and 42, I'll read it in a second, where Jesus is going to demonstrate the confidence and power. He's actually going to demonstrate that he wants to give us confidence and power in the fact that God hears him. It says this, 
this is right before um, the, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It says, so they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe you sent me. Jesus is directly saying, I am someone whom God hears. And there is confidence that you can take in me because of this. So this notion that God hears brings vitality, it brings life, it brings courage into David. And I'm just going to take a moment. I want to point out some two, two things that are just really neat imagery and irony of these last three verses. Um, two things that David stated in the first seven somewhere. Um, the first one is in verse four. He says, turn, O Lord. Right? You're far from me. Turn towards me. He cries out for God to turn towards him. What do, did we just see in these last three verses? Who has to turn? David's enemies. David is crying for God to turn towards him as his enemies pursue him. And there's this literal imagery of that uh, his enemies are pursuing him. And God turns towards David to deliver David. And his enemies run into a living, wrathful, angry God. And they must turn back. Oh, the beauty of that irony. Oh, the beauty of that imagery. And then he also says, my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But what happens in the end? Who's greatly troubled? Who's ashamed? His enemies. Because God is near. Because God does turn. Because God does save. David's not in trouble anymore. It's his enemies that are in trouble. Let's just dive um, a little bit deeper then into this uh, as we prepare to, to wrap up. What has the Lord heard? We know that he hears and we know that David gets confidence from this. But what exactly has the Lord heard? Verses 8 and 9, he's heard the sound of David's weeping. He's heard his plea. And he's heard his prayer. I believe that the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7, can be summed up and that David has been acknowledging the seriousness of his sin and repenting of it. He's going to God in repentance as the only one who can deal with his sin. This positive transformation that we see in David's heart, that God has done in David's heart, is because of who God is in light of David's repentance. You do not get verses 8, 9, and 10 without repentance of your sin. This is key. This is pivotal. It is because of what David has done in these ver first seven verses, this repentance and acknowledgement of sin and taking it to God, the only one who has the authority to do something about it, that David arrives at this place where everything shifts. His confidence, his life, his vitality, his hope, it all returns after his repentance. Going even deeper, what does this repentance look like? 
Well, it looks like David has acknowledged his sin and what it brings. What does it bring? Wrath, anger, death, Sheol. It looks like he's asking for grace. Be gracious to me, O Lord. It looks like he's asking for healing. Heal me, O Lord. It looks like he's asking for God to turn to him. Turn, O Lord. It looks like he's asking the Lord to save him for the sake of his steadfast love and appealing to God and his character of love. Now, if uh, you're one of the members of this church, um, what does this remind you of, this repentance? I hope it reminds you of the gospel. I hope it reminds you of the need of salvation, the need of a great deliverer, the need of someone who can forgive us our sins and restore us again. In the story that I told you in the beginning of this message, I left out, on purpose, I left out one part of the story. What I should have said is that when this cure was discovered, it was impossibly expensive. Someone like you or me could never afford it, not in a million years. But a wealthy and generous benefactor came and found you. And at great cost to him, he paid for your cure. He saved you. He delivered you. Oh, the joy. Oh, the hope. Oh, the wonderfulness of this story. It is so good that we have more of the Bible past David's life. The story that continues in the Bible continues past David in his life. We, as Christians here today, living in this world right now, this temporally, we have the benefit of knowing where this wonderful Savior comes from and who he is. His name is Jesus Christ. For those of you who are listening to this and you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not repented of your sin to the great physician, have you felt the symptoms of your greater problem? Have you suffered because of your guilt and sin, this, this looming doom above you? I'm here to tell you today that it is because of Jesus that your suffering from sin is actually a mercy of God. Your guilt and suffering from the wicked that you have done is a window into seeing the powerful source of your pain. To recognize the seriousness of your sin and your ability to over, inability to overcome it is a good thing. It's a blessed opportunity for you to repent and to look to Christ who offers salvation for your sin. Without Christ, you are doomed to live in the rising tension of sin to the point of death, having nothing but separation from God and suffering forever. Like the story in the beginning, it just gets worse. 
Yes, the terrible news is that the power of sin is great, but the good news in the Bible that we find is that Jesus is greater than our sin. Sin brings God's wrath and anger. Jesus drank all of God's wrath, having it poured out on himself on the cross. Verse one of David's cry, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ are now disciplined in love. Hebrews 12, six, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Yes, sin has its consequences for you and me, but the great physician is not willing to let your disease run rampant without any warning. These symptoms point to your need of a savior. They point to the seriousness of your sin and they point to the one who can restore because he is greater. In verse two, David's plea for God to be gracious to him is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ who gives grace to those who come to him. Grace. Sin brings sickness to the body, to the mind, and to the soul. But Jesus is the great healer who overcame this broken world and the brokenness of everyone who comes to him. He conquered death and he offers life eternal. Life as it should be. David's request for healing is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ who gives healing to anyone who comes to him. Sin separates us from God. It turns him away from us. Jesus is the solution that enables God to turn back to us and deliver us from our sin. David's cry for salvation is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ who freely saves those who would come to him. We have no merit to save ourselves. But we can go to God's character of love which is perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. And it is trustworthy. Jesus is perfectly revealing God's love. David is putting his trust in the right character. You who are broken from sin, cry to God in repentance and discover that he is near, and be confident he saves.